Thanks for reading, Matteo. Do you know what the um, Italian version, the, original, the first words in the Italian version are? Matteo said this in a very excited text to me today. He says, bravo. That sounds ace, doesn't it? Bravo. Don't know where he went from there. I wouldn't have been able to understand any more of it, but he started bravo. Um, we're looking at devoted. Today, I want to talk to us in the last of this series about worship. I don't know if you realize, um, but whoever gets up to preach or lead here, we join in with the big chorus of creation. We join in with God's ultimate plan for us. Our hope is, no matter what we say, whether we go with anecdote heavy, whether we read out verbatim what we've written down on the page, our ambition is for people of earth, people that gather in this room, to find themselves in a place where they are worshipping, where they recognize something of how brilliant God is, how amazing he is, and they are lost in it. That's our ambition. That's what we're trying to do. So tonight's sermon is, what is, well, it's three things very quickly. What, what is it? What is worship? Why it matters? And what it looks like when God's in and amongst it? What it is, what worship is, why it matters, because it does matter, and what it looks like when God is in and amongst it. And I've given, um, I've scrambled together, I've probably pulled all the cleverest people that I read's definitions of what worship is. So I've nicked, I've, I guess you, I could say that I've pulled it, otherwise you could say I've stolen, <laughs> I've stolen it, but I've pulled it together and given it a, an Ash Gibson Yorkshire edge as well. So my definition for what worship is, and I'll pad it out, is it's when our whole being, when with our whole being, we acknowledge something priceless. That's what worship is. When with our whole being, we acknowledge something priceless. So I don't know if we can have some of the text up, but any amount of the text that would be helpful in this. So first of all, I want us to see that it's with our whole being. So as is often the case in Psalms, it's a song. But as is often the case with the Bible in terms of worship, it's so much more than a song. You will see in the text... Um, Maybe you won't see in all the text. I'll try and reference it. There are elements in the Psalms, as always, that talks about the emotional side of our personality. There is rejoicing. There is trembling and fear. There is the heart bit of the personality. But there's also our physicality. There is a command in this Psalm to go and get something and offer it as a sacrifice. There's singing. There's things we actually have to do. And there is stuff that we've got to know. There is stuff that the psalmist, the writer of this psalm, has reasoned out. He said about God, I think it's verse 9 or 10 or 11, somewhere not there, is we know that God holds the earth in his hands. We know that he's going to judge it. We know that he sustains it. These things come together. It's the whole person, our emotions, our physicality, and what we know. We are commanded in both the Old and New Testaments so I think kind of God says it, I think it's Deuteronomy 6, the Shema, I think it's called something like that. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength. And Jesus reinforces it. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your, and all your mind and all your strength. It's more than just a song or a lump in your throat. It's where the emotional feeling that you get doesn't just stand alone. It's not just a shiver down the spine. It's backed up by something that you know, where that thing that you do is a response to the joy that you found. That's what worship is. And worship is those things, that whole being response, confronted with something priceless. So the word 
Um, worship comes from this idea of something that's worth, something that is of ultimate worth. In Jesus, we find something that, in Jesus and in God, we find something that is of ultimate worth. And the, the verse that caused me to sit here and preach for me, it's all, is a similar, uh, similar verse in, in Psalm 95 and in Psalm 105, but it's here in verse 8 that caused me to think this is the, ver- this is the psalm I need to preach on. It says, ascribe to the Lord the glory due to his name. Our task is to figure out, to reason, to acknowledge how much God is worth and then to represent that by giving the glory back to him. And God is of limitless value. He is priceless. So what does worship look like? I've gone to what will seem at the start of it an unlikely source to make this uh, definition, but I wanted to engage the whole audience. I'm going to ask uh, the tech team if they can put the picture up at the moment. Does anybody know? I spent most of my dark teenage years encased in one of those things. It was my solace. It was where my moody self stayed the whole time. It is a wonderful Walkman. Now, why have I got a Walkman up on the screen? If you, does anybody who doesn't know what a Walkman is? Just out of, does everybody know what a, it's a and I look at it now, and I see it as a thing of beauty. So I'm going to reference Marvel again. Has anybody seen the film Guardians of the Galaxy? You don't have to answer. I'm sure you've all seen it. If you've not seen it, it's the key way in to the Marvel films. And this is the central storyline of the Marvel films. Now, the main character, or the character that I was most engaged with, is a guy called Star-Lord. And he has, I think he's called Star-Lord, he has this Walkman, and partway through the film, so the backstory of this is that his mum, who passed away, she died, made him, you can't see, I don't, maybe, maybe you can't see it from here, it's Awesome Mixtape Volume 2. She made him a playlist, and what becomes apparent to Star-Lord as Guardians of the Galaxy goes on, and this happens as he gets it nicked, he ends up in some crazy, spacey sort of jail, is how... Yeah, I don't describe uh, sci-fi very well. There's a crazy, spacey sort of jail. I do marvel at this service. He realizes how priceless it is. Not because of the tunes, and the tunes are really cool, but because his mum is the lasting memory of his mum, and it becomes priceless. And what happens is the really interesting thing. Because Star-Lord, any time that you mention the Walkman, any time it's in his vocabulary, any time it's in his mind, all of his emotions are engaged. Chris Pratt is this big muscly dude, but he's so emotional about the Walkman. And when it gets nicked, what you find out is he will physically do anything to get it back. But he doesn't just do, he's not just emotional and he's not just physical. He gets smart. He uses every bit of wisdom that he knows to get this Walkman back because it's priceless. We have things, so just think about this for a second. Don't know if you've got a Walkman. Probably not a Walkman for you. But you've got something in your life that is priceless. Now, often, the thing that is priceless to us, often, I think, it might be a thing, but it's probably a person. And you probably are not always aware of how priceless they are. There are moments in our life that comes around, births, deaths, illnesses, markers in life, where we realized that somebody is priceless to us. And when we have that moment, our full being 
is engaged. Not the, the, and, and all our whole body, our, physic, our physicality, our mind, and our emotions come into play. I know really tough, regular Yorkshiremen, a few come to mind now, who are recently have learned that life is priceless. And I've seen emotions that I've never seen in them before. And I've seen them grab books and thirst for knowledge about how to bring up kids that I've never seen before. And I've seen them willing to do anything physically that is physically possible because they've found this priceless thing. That is what worship is. Worship is when you're with your whole being, you respond to something priceless. And often it's just... Or I would maybe say even it's only when the thing is priceless that our whole being can respond to it. Worship is not just a physical sing-song. It's not just doing something. It's not just a lump in our throats. It's when the priceless treasure that you found has moved your heart. And when that joy that's in your heart is firmly backed up by stuff that you know causes you to go and sing or clap or dance or shout or look after somebody. That is what worship is. One of the interesting things I think is lots of us have got things in our life that we see as priceless and yet we don't always recognize it. Lots of us might say that we have got God in our lives. We might have had God in our lives for a long time. If you read the stats, half the globe has some sort of concept of God in our life. But I wonder if we always recognize him as priceless. Worship is when with our whole being, we acknowledge something priceless. Second thing, why does it matter? Why does it matter? This is very much, I'm going to use the language of borrowed, but it's probably stolen from uh, Tim Keller, who writes a couple of books about idols that um, have escaped my memory. Somebody will remind me of them uh, afterwards. But he's, he writes all sorts about how idols and how we see idols and the, and the ultimate emptiness in idols. Worship, why it matters. We all worship something. So we really ought to make sure it's the best thing. And if it's not a really, really good thing, it's going to cut us up. This is the wisdom that Tim Keller uses over and over and over again. We all worship something. Um, now, just to make this point, the singing, I am, one, I am a, every now and again, it's not all the, all the time, and I'm checking my sweat marks here, but I'm going to go for it anyway. Sometimes when we're singing, I want to, I, I am ready to raise my hands to a holy God. I'm, I'm swept up. Now, I'm a cautious, um, conservative, brought up in a, maybe a conservative family, so I only ever normally get about this far. But in my heart, I am there. In my heart, I think, oh, God is holy. It's amazing. Now, the truth of it is, see, when my children do something great, maybe do well in a sports day or something like that, I'm not even giving a second thought. My hands, I'm shouting, and my hands are in the air. If I go and see my favorite band, it's out of my consciousness. My hands are in the air. If Leeds score, even if I'm amongst people that have got no idea I'm a Leeds fan, my hands are in the air. Worship is intuitive to us. Worship is part of our DNA. Worship is who we are. And we will all have things in our lives that we give ourselves over to completely, that we worship. The wisdom, I think, in this text, and it's, uh, it's pulled out of verse 5, is that we have got to pick something that will last. 
Verse 5 says, For all the gods of the nations are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. All the gods of the nations are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. The first hearer of that is being told that the God that the Hebrews worship can be seen in all of creation, can be seen in the expanse of the sky. But these little idols that the peoples around about have got, they're just going to turn to dust at some point. The message is really simple, I think. Give, because we all worship something, because we will give ourselves over to something, make sure that you make that thing the best thing the ultimate thing, the priceless thing. And the wisdom of Tim Keller goes like this. If it, is, if it is not, if it isn't, don't know if that's me or not. If it is not an ultimate thing, if it is not a best thing, if you are giving yourselves over, if you are giving yourself over heart and soul to something that is not going to last, is vulnerable, will break, then it will crush you at some point. It'll crush you and break you at some point. We all will worship something. So the wisdom is, take a step back. If there's even a, if you're a, I don't know how you think about God or anything like that, if there's even a possibility of a God out there, you should investigate it with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. If that possibility exists at all, turn to it. One of the things I think that's really tragic about our world and the world that we live in probably more so now than ever any other point in history is how quickly we turn body heart and soul to worship something that's really temporary we do it all the time as a culture at the moment we go in full throttle to worship something that's only going to be here for five minutes and we worship it and how slow we are to recognize the things that are priceless in our lives and yet when we get towards the end of our days, as I've seen people get towards the end of our, our days and I've read books, what we realize is that all that matters ultimately is the priceless things, the things that you hold as priceless. It really matters what you worship. Last thing, last things. What it looks like when God's in control of your worship, what it looks like to have God become the apple of your eye what it looks like to treasure him. So it's just, it's not all that the psalm says. The psalm says lots of things, but it's three points because that's what people who preach tend to do in these moments. We pick three, <laughs> we pick three things. It's like a preacher's disease. We can't help it. So I've just picked three things. The first thing I want us to see that when God is the apple of our eye and we are worshiping him, we have a new song. We don't just have a song, but we have a new song. Our mindset often in the world I think, is that we think that we've seen it all. As I age, I find myself feeling that and thinking that. And as I walk through Cass, which is where I live, I hear an expression that represents that. People say to me all the time, and when they say this, they look me bolt in the eye, like they couldn't be more true. They look at me and they go, I've seen it all, me. It's an expression, it's a, it's a proper, I don't know if it happens all over the country, but when people say that to me, they say it to me like, they really mean it and don't dare challenge it. And most of the time, I think, yeah, perhaps you're right, and I go along with it. And then occasionally, I think, really? You've seen it all? You've seen the Northern Lights in the company of a wonderful woman? You've seen uh, 
a starry sky with a nice glass of wine in your hand. You've seen um, the dawn rise over the desert. You've seen the intimate realms of the universe. You've seen it all, really. You've seen it all. And yet, yeah, even though of course it's not true, we think like this, don't we? we? It's easy. And I find myself struggling to welcome new things and see new things. And yet we can easily fall into these habits of thinking that, oh, yeah, we've seen it all. For the person that knows God, because God is so vast, because his mercy is so deep, because his word is so rich, because his reach is so wide. And for the Christian, because in Jesus, we get to see how big he is. And because in Jesus, we get to see how small we are and how much that we need it. Every day, by the power of his spirit, we are shown new mercies, new things of God. There's new, I don't care how long you've been a Christian, because of the size of our God and because of his beauty and his depth, there's new things for us to see every day. I don't, I, even though we think we've seen it all, and we think there's nothing I can turn to in this book, there's nothing this preacher can say, there's nothing that can happen in my day, there is new things for you to experience about God. That's the first thing. Second thing that it looks like is that it's sacrificial. See verse 8? This is one of a few verses that encourages us to do something. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Got to do something. Somebody that's caught, caught hold of who God is and how brilliant he is got to do something. One of the, I think the modern takes... Maybe that's not right. Maybe that's not fair. Maybe it's always been here. But it feels like one of the takes we have on worship is that we should come and, we sh- and, and, and it really works if when we leave, we feel great. That's what worship is. We should go away feeling on a real high. And if we don't get the high, then it's not what worship is. I think the Bible says over and over again that it, it is that, but it's also sacrificial. It costs. David says here in this psalm, wherever you are right now, go back and get something, something that's really important to you, something that costs something, and then give it away. Paul puts it in more stark and beautiful terms in Romans 12, I think. He says, a spiritual act of worship is getting yourself and putting yourself on the altar. It's a big ask, isn't it? Sometimes, some of the list, it's a big ask. And yet, what do we remember about how we act when we find something priceless? When we recognize something is priceless. When we see a life that is priceless. Suddenly, the energy comes from nowhere to do whatever it takes beyond our own physical capacity. And not only does the energy come, but actually the heart comes as well. Even though it's exhausting, even though we've got, maybe got somebody on their deathbed and we've got to do them favors, or we've got somebody who's newly born and we can't do enough for them. Not only do we find the energy, but we find the desire. We want to help. It becomes important to us. Worship is new every morning. We get a new song, and we learn the joy of sacrifice. We learn that it's not always a chore. We learn that even when it feels like a chore, it can be a great thing. And the last thing that worship is, or the last place I'm going to stop off at as I finish up, worship with God in the middle of it, with God at the heart of it, is expectant. It's expectant. We expect great things. 
We've got things to look forward to. So read with me uh, the last three verses of the psalm. And lose yourself in the picture as much as you can on a Sunday afternoon. Let the heavens rejoice. Let the earth be glad. Let the sea resound and all that is in it. Let the fields be jubilant and everything in them. Let all the trees of the forest sing for joy. Let all creation rejoice before the Lord, for he comes. This is a song about a people waiting for a king. It's sung in anticipation of the king coming back to Jerusalem. And it's sung, and the expression is, we need this king so bad. It's so right that he comes back. The people need him so much that even the creator, it feels like even the trees would get it. Even the trees are crying out for it. That's how much we need it. Now, this psalm is in part glimpsed, the fulfillment of this is in part glimpsed as Jesus comes to Jerusalem as king, where we hear that even the very stones would cry out, and we see that the people need this greatly. But it is to be ultimately fulfilled when Christ comes again. And we have the idea that the creation waits in anticipation. The creation would want to cry out. Now, on some of this, when you look around at the world, and I'm sure it's still in our future, actually, but does the world not cry out for a good king? Are the stones and the people and the physical creation not crying out for somebody who's worthy? Are we not crying out for it? And as his people who recognize that, that we need a good king, our worship is that we look out at this world and we cry with the creation and we know that we need help and we say, oh, come, king. We need a good king. And it becomes our worship. Our worship is fresh. It's sacrificial, but it's expectant. 